Hi, I'm John Mather, Nobel Prize laureate and senior scientist for the James Webb Space Telescope at NASA, and you're listening to The Soul of Life. He was changing the game. He had a 44-inch vertical leap. You can't stop his shot. You couldn't stop his shot. Jordan trying to stop him. There's this signature play of he steals an inbounds pass, gets it, reverse dunk. The Celtics draft him. Expectations abound. Of course, fantasize is all we were left with. Back in the 80s, I would say there were three guys that stood out above the crowd, and that was Michael Jordan, Ralph Sampson, and Lynn Bias. The, the two opponents that I think were the, were the most talented were Michael and Lynn Bias. Today on The Soul of Life, I speak to Dave Ungrady, author of Born Ready, The Mixed Legacy of Lynn Bias. Lynn's going to be inducted into the National Collegiate Basketball Hall of Fame in the end of November. Dave Grady has been a man on a mission to tell the story of University of Maryland basketball star Len Bias, who died of a cocaine overdose two days after he was drafted to the Boston Celtics in June 1986. Uh, when I speak to teenagers and primarily teenagers and young adults about lessons learned from Len Bias's legacy, which is what that's about, focusing on decision-making, I'm trying to coach them on the best way to make effective decisions. For a long time, leadership within University of Maryland athletics and some of the larger basketball world looked at Len Bias's death simply as a story of tragedy and wanted to move on. But Ungrady has long sought to tell the story of Bias's legacy as a player and as a lesson for young athletes today. I also approached this story as a former athlete. I was able to get a track scholarship at Maryland, was the captain of the track team there in 1980. I never reached the level that Len Bias did few people have. Dave has advocated for years for Bias to receive posthumous accolades. Basically, if you bring embarrassment to the university, you cannot be inducted into the Hall of Fame. He plans to release a new documentary and podcast series to coincide with Bias being inducted into the NCAA Hall of Fame this fall. We talk about the comparisons between Bias and Michael Jordan. Reebok wanted to make Len Bias the Michael Jordan of Nike. They said he was the guy, Reebok. He was the guy they were going after. But these are merely what-ifs. The reality of the Len Bias story is much harder. He gets back to his dorm and he says, let's party. At that time, I was in my mid-20s. I was a young adult. You go to a party and I went to a lot. You have beer, cocaine. It's, it was considered the same thing. We discussed former U.S. drug czar Robert DuPont's statement that Len Bias's overdose from cocaine was the single most important date in U.S. history of drug abuse, next to the founding of AA. Len's death changed how people were penalized for using drugs. It changed people wanting to use cocaine because now it saw that it could kill them. Bias also became a word used by journalists to describe the even bigger story unfolding beneath the Len Bias personal tragedy. Bias as in racial bias that became law when just months after Len's death, Congress enacted harsh mandatory minimum sentences for possession of crack with paltry sentencing for possession of cocaine. Talk about systemic racism, that's that's evident there. Uh, Who was using the crack cocaine? Primarily young black men and women. Welcome to the Soul of Life. I'm Keith Miller. This is episode 17 of season three. 
the legacy of Len Bias. I'm Keith Miller, and my podcast, The Soul of Life, is here to help you remember who you really are. I'll bring together people who have gotten off their treadmills. I'll have conversations with athletes, musicians, doctors, scientists, healers, and entrepreneurs to discuss the fascinating edges of our knowledge in neurobiology, psychology, and physics. This is The Soul of Life. Have you ever been in a position where you know that you or your family member really needs emotional support or marriage enrichment, but you find out how expensive it is to get access to high-quality, out-of-network professionals? Well, I've created the Soul of Life community just for this. At community.souloflifeshow.com, you can join for free and be part of a network of caring and supportive people having conversations that can bring healing to your soul. It's there that you'll find access to psychoeducational courses to deal with stress, anxiety, and relationship conflict. For example, right now I'm offering a seven-week immersive course for couples called Mindful Marriage that walks people through a mindfulness-based stress reduction curriculum I designed that really gives couples in conflict a map towards stability, trust, and deeper intimacy. Just go to community.souloflifeshow.com, check out the courses, and join for free to be part of the Soul of Life community of learners and soul seekers. Dave Grady is a journalist, coach, public speaker, and educator. Today, Dave is joining me on the Soul of Life to speak about the role he has played in telling his, the story, perhaps more passionately than any other, about the tragic death of rising NBA star Len Bias in 1983 from a cocaine overdose. Dave's 2011 book, Born Ready, The Mixed Legacy of Len Bias, provides the backdrop to his public education campaign to use the Len Bias story to teach powerful lessons about the choices and decision-making that faces all young people, not just athletes. Today, we'll dive into the legacy of Len Bias and what it can teach us about athletics and also even criminal justice reform. Talk more about Dave's upcoming narrative podcast and a documentary devoted to the Len Bias story slated for release later this year. Dave, how are you? Nice to see you today. Uh, Keith, I'm doing well and, and good to see you and thanks for this opportunity. Yeah, you're welcome. I'm, uh, I'm excited to speak with you. I, as I shared with you, I, you know, I guess it's uh, in June, June 18th, June 19th. That's the anniversary of, of Len Bias. And as that year, as that anniversary comes up uh, each year, the media picks up stories inevitably as they're, uh, as the, on round numbers, it seems, uh, of that anniversary. And so there was a story run in the Washington Post. And that's, that's how I was introduced to your, your passion for teaching and also sports. It seems like you've had this lifelong passion. I'm curious. If you can speak to that, where you started, and you were captain of the University of Maryland track team, where Len Bias attended, played basketball, and also you're recognized for your soccer coaching and also your your career as a player. When I speak to teenagers and primarily teenagers and young adults about lessons learned from Len Bias's legacy, which is what that's about, focusing on decision making, I'm trying to coach them on the best way to make effective decisions, and and that that sort of brings us back to what we're doing with the 34 plus one campaign and and the podcast series. Um, the 34 plus one campaign started 34 years from Len's death on June 18th. I don't like to call it an anniversary, although an anniversary can be considered a celebration. This is not a celebration. It's more of a recognition of his death. And I do it for a couple of reasons. 
Um, it complements the journalistic mission I'm on and, and the projects of having written the book and what we're doing from there. It recognizes his story, which is important to tell. Uh, yeah. A lot of people like to get a, a, people I've interviewed for the book and the podcast series, they don't want to revisit it. And I understand that. It's a lot to talk about, right? There's it's a, a lot, lot to bring to up. There, there really is. Uh, people still struggle to relive it. It's important to talk about it. And it, it's, it, it's, I think it's important that you're doing this work. It sounds like, so I just want people to know sports and, and your passion for sports is, is out there. It's part, it's part of your life and you're, you're doing it as a coach. And so when you, when you come to this story, you're not just a bystander. I mean, we're all bystanders in a way, but you're, you're really engaging with the story in a, in a very personal way. It sounds like, can you, can you talk about the, the perspective for people who don't know the Len Bias story? Um, you, you know, I was six years old when Len Bias died and I, and I still remember like that period of time. It's like from the, cause I was a big basketball fan growing up in Massachusetts. Of course, mm. that was the story. That was the story. Can you take us through just for the, for the person that doesn't know, like what was, why was there so much whiplash and, and tragedy and disappointment about Len Bias's death? I will get to that momentarily, but to, yeah. to put in full context, my, my part of my interest in this story, we talked about my coaching, but my athletic background, I was a three sport athlete in, in high school and, and, uh, all, all state in two sports. And, and as I mentioned, I was able to get a track scholarship at Maryland, was the captain of the track team there in 1980. All conference soccer didn't work out as well, but that's 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 okay. Uh, so I took I also approached this story as a former athlete. I never reached yeah. the level that Len Bias did. Few people have, but I, I tried to remember how my mentality as an athlete and and what especially when I talked to his teammates for the book and for the podcast, what they may have been thinking, not just dealing with Len as a person, but dealing with them Len as a teammate and what the expectations were and what their what their goals were. So it, it helped, I think, that mentality as a, as a highly competitive athlete to, to take on this story. And I think it helped me relate to these, his teammates a lot better when I talked to them. And I think it helped with the interviews. So uh, the Len Bias story pretty much starts on a national level his sophomore year in college. Uh, he was the ACC, the ACC tournament MVP as a sophomore. When Maryland won the tournament, the first time they won a conference tournament since 1958 in basketball. It's a big deal. Very big deal. ACC, and highly competitive. Very, very competitive. Very much so. Uh, they won it in 1958 uh, when the ACC conference had just started. Um, and Maryland, if anybody who's a, uh, who understands Maryland athletic history, in the 70s, Maryland had one of the best basketball teams in the country. And you could only advance to the NCAA tournament if you won the ACC tournament your conference tournament. And um, Maryland struggled to get the NCAA tournament in the 70s under Lefty Grizel in, in, in part because of that. But they had one of the top teams in the conference almost every year. So they have a very strong history. Uh, but Len's, Len's story on a national level really starts there. Also that year, he played against Michael Jordan in January of 1984. Jordan was a junior, Bias was a sophomore. At Duke. And at, at, Coalfield, at, at uh, North Carolina. Yep. And, and, uh, uh, it was a Coldfield house and this was Len Bias's breakout game. You can go on YouTube and watch the full game, or at least it's at least a 10 minute it's, highlight it's of this. Fun to watch the, the two of them in that one photograph that captures but, Len Bias going up against Jordan. And that's a very symbolic photo because Len is, he's got his hands so high up 
Perfect form. Two feet off the ground, about two feet (laughs) off. You can't stop his shot. You couldn't stop his shot. So that's very symbolic of his skills and, and, and Jordan trying to stop him. It's also symbolic of that game because Bias had 24 in that game and Jordan had 21. Now, one game doesn't make a player better than the other. Carolina was number one in the country. They come in that game and, and they won that game. But that sort of put Len Bias on the national map. And then later that year, as I mentioned, he won, he won tournament MVP in the ACC tournament and Maryland wins it. So now people are starting to really pay more attention to him. People in the D.C. area, where we're from, they knew about him coming out of Northwestern High School. Um, In Prince George's County. In Prince George's County. Importantly, in the book and in the podcast, we go in-depth how Len started as a basketball player. He didn't really start. He he got cut twice from his middle school team. Actually, they called it junior high then. Um, And he started playing at at a place called The Wreck in Columbia Park Recreation Center, a couple blocks from his house. And there was a mentor who was instrumental in, in, in John's life, a guy named Johnny Walker, who was a coach there. And he brought him in and he made him, he toughened up. Basically, Lennon was a baby. Uh, he was great talent, but he was a baby and they toughened him up. By the time he gets to high school, he's a, he's a high school star. Never an All-American in high school, uh, but he was pretty good. Then he gets to Maryland and, and, and uh, he does well a sophomore year. So uh, junior year and senior, he just keeps building momentum it gets more attention and and to sort of concise this a little bit as a senior uh his mar- his his marquee game is down in north carolina uh maryland is maryland is struggling interestingly his senior year a little bit um they're doing not doing too well in the conference they need to win at north carolina with about two games left in this in the in the conference season and carolina's not more in the country again they go down lynn has 34 35 points and there's this signature play of he steals an inbounds pass, gets it, reverse dunk, and, and Maryland wins in overtime. Also in that game, he blocked a shot in overtime that Carolina uh, was trying to come back. So late in the game. Um, so by that time, Len has a national audience. Um, he, the Boston Celtics showed interest in Len really starting his uh, early in his college career. Red Arback. The coach of the Celtics then, I'm sorry, the, 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 uh, the manager of the Celtics, the, the GM of the Celtics then, the, I'm sorry, he, Arbeck was the president of the Celtics. Right, then. right, right. He had coached he, the Celtics. He was probably all of those things at one time. He was all of time. those things at one point. Yeah. He coached them to at least 10 NBA titles in the 60s. And he was very good friends with Lefter Giselle. And so Lefter kept telling right about, about Len. And he, Len came up to a couple of the Celtics summer camps, a, a camp he put on. The players weren't there, but Red Arbeck put on summer camps for top players. So right. that's when they first saw him. And they worked hard to get him as a draft pick. The number two pick. The Celtics had won the title that year in 86. They just won, and they, they get the number two pick. And they get the number pick. two pick. They, they, worked, uh, they worked a trade with uh, the Supersonics, who were not doing well, and, and uh, they were high in the lottery, and the Celtics got that number two pick for a trade. Many considered Len to be the best player. Uh, and he's going to the top team in the NBA. So expectations abound. And beyond that, you have Len had a very out gregarious, very almost childlike personality. The Celtics draft him. And, and being from Massachusetts, you know how, how passionate Boston fans are, especially about their Celtics. Please take the time now to subscribe to The Soul of Life wherever you're listening. Give it a thumbs up or write a positive review.
he was changing the game. He had a 44 inch vertical leap. He was, he was changing the game this way. Uh, if you compare him to Jordan, Jordan was more of a glider. Len was a leaper, 6'8, 220, 20 pounds, 5% body fat. You didn't see and, too many and, athletes and, built like that. And this is at the time when, uh, bird and magic are, are a thing, but they're, but they're, we're looking for the next thing, right? Jordan is, Jordan obviously emerges mm. to become the thing and, and, and arguably without a rival. A lot of people said that Len would have been the Magic Johnson to Larry Bird for Jordan. There was a, there was a lot of discussion about that. And I think rightfully so. By the time Len would have played for the Celtics, Michael was just starting to get his game going in the NBA. And, and, and the, the other issue is that. Was it Reggie Lewis? Did Reggie Lewis die before Len or after? I'm trying to remember the history there because Reggie Lewis in the early '90s. He was drafted the year after Len died. He was yes. drafted the following year, and so he played for the Celtics for four or five, at least four or five years. Yep. And he died of a natural heart condition. Correct. Dropped, dropped dead, I think, at Brandeis University. So that Correct. was also yeah, so sort of this. They were like the the what ifs abound about the comparisons sure. of what what could have happened. So take us take us through the night of the draft. The day after, uh, Len Len gets drafted number two, as as most people know, and and he wanted to be a Celtics fan. When he was taking making visits to uh, the Celtics for interviews, he told them on the way uh, on the way back when they dropped him off, when they were sending him to go to the airport. The general manager tells me for the book and in the podcast, Len says, "Please draft me. I want to play for the Celtics." He was ready. He was ready, and and. Even the night of the draft, he his one of his quotes was, "Look, I know the team I'm going to. If I have to sit on the bench, I'll sit on the bench. I'm not. I I, I will accept that role. I'm paraphrasing, but that was his that was his mm-hmm. uh, his message. So he was really ready to go to that team and play and be a role player for a year or two. The Celtics were getting older. Uh, Parrish, Walton, McHale, um, Bird." And Len could have played a, a, a uh, reserve role and rested some of those guys, especially Bird and, and McHale. Uh, so a lot of expectations in, in Boston, uh, then, I mean, it, for Boston. After the draft, he goes to Boston. And uh, as I write in the book and we get into in depth in the podcast, he spends most of the day with Reebok. A representative Signing from, uh, an endorsement. And never signed a deal. A lot of people think, thinks, mm. think he did. He never did. They were discussing it. I see. But importantly, uh, we talked to the rep who, an asso- or a marketing associate who spent the day with Len. And her role was to take Len wherever they, he needed to go. So a lot of insight there. They wanted to make him, it, interestingly, Jordan just signed his contract with Nike in March of 86. And it was in March of 85, I think. Uh, just soon, you know, not too, not too far ahead of when Len was directed yeah. in the NBA. And so Reebok wanted to make Len Bias the Michael Jordan of Nike. Jordan hadn't hadn't taken Nike to that level yet. Mm-hmm. So it could have been, the, we could have had a different history with, with could shoes. Have had, could have had a different history with shoes. Correct. Correct. Wow. And they said he was the guy, Reebok. He was the guy they were going after. Uh, he spent a day with Reebok and, and he came back. He came back late to, to uh, later than expected. He missed a couple of points. I missed one appointment. He, uh, an appearance he was supposed to make in Maryland and gets back, you know, nine, 10 30. And he, he stops by at home. And the, the Reebok rep tells me a couple times in the interview, 
Then when she was talking to Len, Len made it a point, I want to go see my mom. I miss my mom. He goes home, his mom's not there. So he never saw his mom before he died. Right. Yeah. He immediately goes, he, uh, he stays at home for a little bit, talks to his family. Then he, he uh, hooks up with some friends. He picks up some liquor. I'm going I'm to condense this part. He, he um, uh, picks up some liquor. He goes to his, he was actually taking summer classes because he dropped a lot of classes in last semester. He was mm. flunking. He flunked most of them, if not all of them. So he did, he did want to graduate. Uh, and we get into that in the, in the book, in the podcast. He gets back to his dorm and he says, let's party. And they bring cocaine. Yep. And this goes on for three or four hours. And at about 6.30, he has a seizure. Um, and, and I worked on this section yesterday on the podcast, uh, scripting it, this part of the story. And there's a teammate, Jeff Baxter, who, uh, senior, like Len, roomed with him for four years. Interesting, never, interestingly, never saw Len do drugs. He had a history of drug use. He did. So that is confirmed that he did use drugs before that night because a lot of people speculate yeah, maybe it's his the, first time. And No, in, in the trial for Brian Tribble, who was with Len when he died, the only player oh. who was with him, non-player, who was with him when he died, he was the only one brought up on charges. And Brian did 10 years? No, not for that. For, he, not for that. Later, yeah. That's oh, okay. another part of the story. Okay. Uh, he, during his trial... The other two play, players in the room with Len when he died were teammates. They were teammates. They one testified that Len introduced him to cocaine, Terry Long, about eighteen months prior to that. I so okay. they had used cocaine. Okay. Um, he had a history of casual use, if you can call it casual. Yeah. A couple of times a week at times. Uh, and we got we've, we've got a lot of confirmation on that. And it seems uh, like the entire group, Dave, of people around Len using cocaine at least in their reporting afterwards, underestimated what they were doing with this drug. They really didn't understand how powerful it was and how they were abusing it. Well, at that time, I was in my mid-20s. I was a young adult. You go to a party, and I went to a lot. You have beer, cocaine. It's, it was considered the same thing. I remember going to a party at a friend's house, and the person at the house said, uh, hey, come here, let me show you something. He was selling cocaine. And there was a, a, a block of cocaine the size of a suitcase in a hefty bag under his bed. It was everywhere. It yeah. was easily accessible. Yeah. Nobody, had, nobody really had died to an extent where a len, he was a Len bias. Of course, that changed right. things. So back to the night when um, Len passes out, Jeff Baxter was in that suite. He was there that night. He was in summer school as well. And gets a knock on his door. And David Gregg says, Len fell. You got to help me. And he goes out there and he describes this vividly uh, in the, in the uh, recorded interview. And, and uh, he, Len has a chain around his neck. And he looks at the chain. He thinks, Len choked himself. I got to get the chain off. I mean, he doesn't know what to do. Yeah. It's just kind of, it's, it's a it's surreal chaos. moment for everybody. Yeah. So he, he, nobody knew how to revive him. Uh, and and they, Jeff goes in depth what happens from there. The scene's at the hospital. He dies at, 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 at just before 9 a.m. And then there's, there is chaos everywhere. Uh, a lot of places. There's, there's chaos. And then uh, tra- uh, challenging situations that no one wants to go through in College Park. Yeah. Eventually the nation. 
the scrutiny that 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 came under the coach of of Maryland. He he resigned within a few months, I believe. He um, was sort of he he did, but he was pushed out. Okay, yeah, it was his but choice, the, but they encouraged him. The 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 level of finger pointing that went on towards other players, obviously the trial of Brian Tribble and other teammates. Um, how does let's zoom out for a minute, Dave? How does the bias story in his death compared to other athletes, notably, I mean, there's many athletes that died tragically. Kobe Bryant, um, uh, Payne Stewart, two aviation deaths, the, the golfer Payne Stewart, Pat Tillman, uh, NFL, killed in uh, service to his country. What's the difference here? Uh, the main difference is Len's death was self-inflicted. That doesn't belittle uh, what happened to them. I'll use a more recent example at Maryland. A football player a couple a few years ago, Jordan McNair, uh, died of heat exhaustion in practice. And there were comparisons to Len because uh, it happened at Maryland. And the big difference is it wasn't self-inflicted. Now, should Jordan have maybe consumed more water before he went out to practice? We don't know that. But Len's death clearly was reckless. Yeah, Payne Stewart died, if I remember, in, in a plane crash. Kobe Bryant died, if I remember, of course, in a helicopter crash. Was the pilot reckless? Perhaps. Kobe wasn't. Uh, Pat Tillman is, in a sense, the closest to Len's death because he decided, and it was a bold, it was a brave move. I mean, talk about a patriot. That's a patriot. Gives up a a prominent NFL career to fight for his country because he thought it was the right thing to do. Not, Not many people would do that. Very selfless. So is that self-inflicted? No, but it's part of his decision-making went into that. Yeah. Uh, he put himself in a position to po- for that possibly to happen. The others, no. Um, and to my knowledge, none, the legacy of their deaths don't compare to Len's legacy. Uh, Len's story, unfortunately, is more how his death affected things. And people tend to forget how great a player he was. When you hear Len Bias, especially even partly part your generation, um, my generation, we were, we were adults and knew what was happening when it happened. Uh, the current generation, they hear Len Bias. Yeah, he was a basketball player, died of drugs. Yeah. But they, they know of him. They don't know about him. Uh, and I think Len's legacy is more profound than any of theirs for how it affected the nation still does today and may right. for a long time. Right. Right. And, and there's, there's a confluence of stories here going on because you have this political firestorm that's that's arguably would have ignited even if Len hadn't died around um, lawmakers, admittedly most of them white, especially at that point in the 80s, um, trying to, you know, wringing their hands. You have Nancy Reagan, the war on drugs, the Reagan, you know, Reagan, I think four months after this, it, you, I think you, you go into depth about, maybe you can talk about this, Tip O'Neill and... Uh, there's another. There's another important figure, the the person who really authored the, the crime bill, Eric Sterling, who lives not far from you, actually. Yeah, and, and these people, at least Eric Sterling, it sounds like comes out and says, "I am sorry. Like I, we blew it mm-hmm. with this war on drugs." Um, and so you have this. You know, ironically, I, I was a social worker in the city uh, in in the early 2000s, and at that point, even at that point, we're still dealing with the legacy of crack cocaine flooding the streets um heroin you know later became the big thing 
But you have lawmakers in all these cities saying, what can we do? And then the Len Bias death. Arguably, you know, if you look at this from a really cynical point of view, impacts a white person's budget, the NBA, right? It's also a white league, arguably, in, as far as the ownership. And then all of a sudden, now we have to do something about the drug problem. What are we going to do? We're going to make mandatory minimum sentences. And that's what comes out of this war on drugs, which we're still dealing with today. Um, can you, can you speak about this a little bit? Let you, you, in, 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 let me ask you about the, the impact that the 30 for 30 the ESPN's, um, documentary series had on you and your, your decision to write the story. Um, what, what was that impact? Documentary came out in 2009, produced by a, a local producer, Kirk Frazier. One of the, uh, one of the original 30 for 30 productions from ESPN. And, uh, I didn't see the doc. I saw the documentary shortly after it came out. And, uh, I had written two previous books about athletics at Maryland, one about the complete history and then one legends of basketball, legends of, legends of Maryland basketball. So the 30 for 30 was sort of a catalyst to make me think what's been done in print book form about Len's legacy. There, were, there was one book written in the late 80s about um, the immediate aftermath and focused on Lenny, Len Lefty and, and the chancellor at, at Maryland uh, uh, at the time, uh, Chancellor Slaughter. So, um, so I, then I got to it and it was hard. Uh, certainly the most challenging journalism project I've ever done. You're sort of pulling teeth. Uh, it was worse than that, I think. You, you put your head down and you just get it done. And that's what, the what, approach what, I tried to take for the book. What do you think people are afraid of? What, what do you think you were really dealing with in terms of this struggle to, to get people to speak about this? What, what's, what, do you, what do you imagine? I think a couple is? things. It's just so hard to relive because it affected so many people on a personal level so profoundly. Um, and I think, I think some of them want to protect his legacy. They don't want to talk about the drugs. One of the more interesting parts about working on this project is almost to a man of his teammates I talked to, they say they never saw Len do drugs, which maybe that's the case. Uh, only one player I talked to confirmed that he had, he was comfortable knowing that Len had done drugs. Um, and he wasn't a uh, Phil Nevin. He wasn't a prominent player, uh, but he was on the team. Um, so for, for those two reasons, and, and yeah. it's, it's, the family's a prime example. They wouldn't talk to me. I've never, I've never been given a reason. We tried many times, uh, many efforts to reach out to the family. Um, and it's unfortunate, but I understand. And they have now, spoken extensively. They were inter well, interviewed on the 30 for 30. She's a public the, speaker. That's the part I struggle with. Now, I know people were paid to be in that documentary. I we see. don't pay anybody. Yeah. 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 Um, it's the, interesting. Yeah. Uh, there was another podcast that came out earlier this year about Len's legacy, uh, produced by The Ringer, and Miss Bias talked to them. I, I'm not criticizing her; she can do whatever she wants, and who can who can who can relate to what she's been through? It's really her Few story. People, I mean, yeah. yeah. It, it, well, I'll differ in a little bit. It, she's a big part of the story, but Len was an adult at the time. If Len was a minor, I would take a much different approach to this. Mm. He was an adult. 22, he made his own decision. Um, and that's why, you know, people have asked me, why do you, why don't you think more about how it affects her? I do. Mm. But 
It's been reported extensively already. Len was an adult. I know how important this story can be to help people. You know, we take it to the next level and we talk about the Born Ready Project, how you can help people from this. That right. wasn't my intent initially. Yeah. But after I wrote the book and people said, so you wrote this book, what are you going to do with it? So uh, how are you going to help people? Or So, uh, so this is what we... This is what we've done. So I understand yeah, the yeah. perspective. Um, it, it's it's uh, but it's been it's been a challenge. There's there's a quote from the former U.S. drug czar Robert Dupont mm-hmm. um, in the Thirty for Thirty and, and other other reporting that uh, he said that Len Bias is and I'm astounded by this. He said Len Bias's death was the single most important date in U.S. history related to drug use since the mm-hmm. founding of Alcoholics Anonymous. Can you can you explain that? When I heard that, it blew me away. Uh, it's it, um, it's an interview we did with him um, for the do- the book and the documentary. Uh, I I don't know if I can add much to that. It's so profound, specifically, uh, as I understand, Alcoholics Anonymous. It changed how people lived with the disease, and they could live with the disease. Um, this lens death changed how people were penalized for using drugs. It changed people wanting to use cocaine to a large extent because now it saw that it could kill them. That, that's uh, guess, my sense of the only thing he could be really speaking to is right. that, it, it, that it provided a, a, a redemption story for people. Yeah. Yes, a redemption story in a way, I'm going to stop. I saw what it did to Len. Let me save myself. Yeah. And maybe other people would convince those who had cocaine problems. Let me see if I can save that, that person yeah. because Len died from it. Where do you think we stand now with, with criminal justice reform? What, what's your sense of that? As I just mentioned, there's a lot of, lot of progress. To go back a little bit into the, into, to synopsize that, uh, Congress reacted very cynically. Uh, the Democrats wanted to maintain their hold, their majority in Congress. And Tip O'Neill saw an opportunity. He was the Speaker of the House, Democrat. So they pushed this legislation through the 1986 Anti-Drug Abuse Act. Which basically tough on, tough on crime, tough on tough, and it was part of the war on drugs. Tough on crime attitude through Congress lasted another two decades, and it was building momentum at that time. In the context of cocaine, what it did was create a uh, 500, uh, 101 disparity crack powder cocaine. You had 500 grams of powder cocaine, uh, five grams five of crack grams cocaine. Of crack. You received the same mandatory minimum of five years. Who was using Which the crack? A ludicrous. Scientific sort of, <laughs> uh, it, many. Re- I mean, it talk about systemic racism. It, it, that's that's evident there. Uh, who was using the crack cocaine? Primarily young black men and women. Who was using the powder cocaine? Primarily white suburban uh, young people. And a and, mandatory minimum five years for five grams five. of crack. On which, top of that, and not just you didn't have to consume it. Let's say Keith, you were a doorman outside of an operation that was uh, distributing cocaine. You yeah. never saw it. You never touched it. Conspiracy, wow. you would get the same five-year mandatory now. So, so the, pretty brutal. Where prison population explodes, explodes, and and decimates families across the country. Black families primarily, right. mm-hmm. it, primarily black families. Correct, and it, it 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 affects the children who are born at that time to to the young black people who are in prison. So let's go to uh, present day. Uh, Obama's administration, the Fair Sentencing Act, reduced it to eighteen to one. Um, and I'm forgetting the name of the act during the Trump administration uh, legislation that passed 
that created more awareness that allowed, allowed the judges to have more discretion in reducing that sentence. Right. It was another step forward. Yes. To yeah. present day, about a month ago, the Senate Judiciary Committee had a big hearing where they're going to push forward legislation to level that mandatory minimum. Uh, it's the, it's the, I think it's the Fair Act, Safe Act or the Fair Act. I'm forgetting what it's called. So you're going to see in the next few months, next year, Congress making a stronger push to uh, level that mandatory minimum and and give more discretion, even to more discretion to judges to reduce that sentence for federal crime, federal crimes. Right. Ironically, it's happening perhaps by the end of the Biden administration. Joe Biden was instrumental in passing that initial legislation. Yeah. So yeah, this is around. 35 years later. Um, yeah. The, the other irony, I think the other irony, Dave, and this is far afield, but is that the opioid epidemic is front and center now, primarily a white problem. And you have police chiefs across the country coming out saying, you know, these young boys need treatment, not jail. Mm-hmm. These young white boys. Mm-hmm. And so it's, you know, if, if, if you're a black person hearing that message and seeing the story, I can only imagine how that feels as far as oppression and systematic racism. And, um, it's it just, it's it, the, the coincidence can't be lost. No. Um, and, and we, in the podcast, we, in the book and the podcast, we've talked to some people whose lives were greatly impacted by that legislation to this day. It and, has to be and, talked about. Yeah. And it's still, it's still hurting some of these people. It's, it's really brutal. Uh, yeah. Their personal lives and what's happened to their children and, and how they've been impacted. It's so yeah. you, you just can't forget. And as, as Jay Billis said, this is the part of the story that's never really been told. And yeah. we should never forget that part. We should never yeah. forget it. You were a frequent advocate, I think, for many, many years for Len to be inducted into the Maryland Athletic Hall of Fame, which, which it recently did. What, why do you think the committee changed its mind? Well, that was in 2014. A couple things happened, I think, uh, more broadly and then more specifically. In 2012, a gentleman named Bob Gagan, uh, a local guy, if you remember the Capital Classic, Maryland, uh, the basketball all-star game. Yeah. It's, it used to be the big one in this country for decades. Yeah the 70s, 80s, and 90s. And Bob was the founder of that. And he had a strong interest in uh, promoting basketball in this area. And he, did, he uh, used to have a, um, a, a, a Washington, Metropol- Washington, D.C. Metropolitan Basketball Hall of Fame. I, I think he still has it occasionally. But he decided to induct Len in 2012. So that was the first Hall of Fame induction for Len. At about that time, uh, the University of Maryland's M Club, of which I'm a, I'm a board member, they, they nominate the halls, the, the inductees into the Athletic Hall of Fame. Their committee had been discussing Len for years. There were people on the committee who were very reluctant, and I'm not going to reveal a big name because we're going to let it come out in the podcast, who people will know in Maryland Athletics who was on that committee, they were... From the old guard, they called them people back who were either played athletics or in the athletic department back in the 60s, even back as far back as the 50s, all the way through the 60s, the 70s, and 80s. And, and, and then the, they, they remember what it did to the university. There was a clause in the bylaws that said, if you bring any ill repute to the university, I'm not using the right word, but basically if you bring embarrassment to the university, you cannot be inducted into the Hall of Fame. So you can, you can argue there was some John Lucas after he left, 
uh, he became a coke addict and and had problems. So right. it's relative. So anyway, there was a lot of resistance for many years, and then those voices started to recede. The big reason we're doing the podcast now and releasing it in October, November, is Len's going to be inducted into the National Collegiate Basketball Hall of Fame in the end of November. This will be his ultimate Hall of Fame induction. That's the big, yeah. He never played professional basketball, so he wouldn't never go into Naismith. That's the ultimate right. one. So the athletic department is producing a documentary on Len, which would never have happened 10 years ago, I don't think. Mm, it's opening doors for more attention. More Correct. More attention. They're going to time it when he's going to be inducted into the National Collegiate Basketball Hall of Fame. So it's symbolic of more acceptance. Yeah. Uh, it's yeah. been a slow build. Uh, I'm glad it's there. And, and um, it, it was inevitable, I think. It's such good work, Dave. I, I want to really commend you for it and, and for, for embracing the narrative that you, the way you have, uh, to, to, to be helpful with this narrative. So many people, I mean, in my profession in mental health, we know this for a fact when there's a suicide or when there's a, um, some sort of self harm related death and people feel shame and people don't want to, people don't have the same amount of empathy towards those families. In fact, those are the things that actually we need to talk more about. Those are the things that are, are the most human about us, addictions and emotional pain and everything. And so the fact that you're doing this, what, what is the, how have young kids reacted to this story when you go in to teach? You're, you're a high school teacher, so you, you know how to speak to kids. What's their reaction? How is this helpful or, or where, how does it land? They ask a lot of questions. Uh, I don't know if it's life-changing for them but they ask a lot of questions. Um, the larger groups that I have talked to, and I haven't done a lot of speaking in the last seven or eight years because I transitioned to become a teacher six years ago and I've been focusing on that. Yeah. Uh, this 34 plus one campaign, the tail end is get back out there again and start telling the story again. So I think we're a right. year or two away from that. Yeah. Um, yeah. But the, there's curiosity. Um, most people that I talk to now and I, I, I um, work in the public school system. Most kids never heard of Len Bynes. But when you say, hey, he was, he was as good, at, he was good. When you mentioned the comparison to Michael Jordan, oh, there's a little interest. Yeah. Yes, we tried to present that very dynamically up top so you would understand. And there's, there's so many more resources on YouTube you can, you can find. Right. Um, but when I did, that's why it's important, uh, not just to tell Len's story because they're not going to really, they'll get it and they'll go, okay. So, the, yeah. so, you know, that's a good story. Yeah. But when you add on the decision making component to this, this is where you can, you can reinforce that legacy. This is why you have to make effective decisions. Notice I'm not saying good or bad because you don't know how the decision is going to, decision is going to turn out sometimes. Yeah, and it's important to note that we're working with the Decision Education Foundation on this, on the thirty-four plus one campaign. One of the segments that we're going to do—it's the last segment of the series in the podcast series—we're going to have a roundtable discussion about effective decision making. Not you've got to make a, a good or effective decisions. How do you do it? Yeah, and here are some stories of people who use those tools and how it helped them. We're gonna—we're working with Octagon Entertainment on this production. They represent a lot of high-profile athletes. Simone Biles, Michael Phelps, uh, Giannis Antetokounmpo, and entertainers. 
We're going to try to get some of their personalities to come in and talk about their decisions they made. We're going to, you know, we, uh, we'd love to get Phelps or Simone Biles in there. Don't know if we can. Yeah, that's great. But it, that's what we want to do with this discussion. And that's what we're trying to do with this campaign is it's important to tell his story. It's almost as important, if not more important. What are we using that story for to teach people how to improve their lives, life skills, yeah. Um, yeah. make them better people? Anything else you want people to know about? Maybe tell people where they can find you and when this, when the podcast and the documentary is being released. Sure. The go to gogradymedia.com, gogradymedia.com, and you can find all our social media platforms there as well. And we have information about the podcast series. And ultimately, we want to do a documentary with Octagon focusing on the social justice aspect of Len's story, uh, how it, how it uh, increased prison populations, legislation by Congress increased prison populations because of the war on drugs, mandatory minimums, which we referred to before. Um, it, just to add on to that, if you remember from the sizzle reel, Jay Billis, who was a uh, prominent ESPN broadcaster and played the same four years for Duke when Len was at Maryland, played against Len. He says that's the part of the story that's not really been told. That's the biggest part of the story. Impact on the uh, how Congress reacted and the impact social justice reform, criminal right. justice reform, which is still continuing today. Still continue. We're still trying to unravel that. Yeah, and it's moving. Yeah. They're making progress toward reducing that mandatory minimum, and hopefully that'll happen soon. There's still efforts. Um, uh, but go to gogradymedia.com. The podcast series we hope to debut in October. The last segment on Lynn's legacy, which will address his Hall of Fame inductions, will will uh, be presented the week of his induction into the National Collegiate Basketball Hall of Fame end of November. So, and, and that's, Great timing. That weekend is November 19 and 20, I think that is. Dave Ungrady, really wonderful to speak with you. You're the author of Born Ready, The Mixed Legacy of Len Bias. Thanks for talking with me today. Keith, thank you so much for the time. And if I can help in the future, please let me know. Hey, I've started a community for Soul of Life fans interested in talking about episodes or getting more information about some of my teaching on IFS, mindfulness, and relationship growth. Head on over to community.souloflifeshow to get access to this group of really cool people just like you who care about the show and want to talk about episodes or, or hear more, or get access to courses and, and support each other through life. That's what this is all about. Please leave an iTunes rating for the show and subscribe now wherever you listen to get more soul in your life. I like it and it's not harsh to my eardrop. All right, I will go. 